Chapter 7 of Visions and Revisions by John Cooper Powis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dickens. It is absurd, of course, to think that it is necessary to hold a brief for Dickens. But sometimes, when one comes across charming and exquisite people who cannot read him, one is tempted to give one's personal appreciation that kind of form. Dickens is one of the great artists of the world, and he is so in spite of the fact that in certain spheres, in the sphere of sex, for instance, or the sphere of philosophy, he is such a hopeless conventionalist. It is because we are at this hour so preoccupied with sex, and our desire to readjust the conventions of society and morality towards it, that a great artist who simply leaves it out altogether, or treats it with a mixture of conventionality of the preacher and the worst foolishness of the crowd, is an artist whose appeal is seriously handicapped. Yet, given this lacuna, this amazing gap in his work, a deprivation much more serious than his want of philosophy, Dickens is a writer of colossal genius, whose originality and vision puts all our modern literateurs to shame. One feels this directly when opens any volume of his. Only a great creative genius could so dominate, for instance, his mere illustrators as to mesmerize them completely into his manner. And certainly his illustrators are drugged with the Dickens atmosphere. Those hideous lovely persons, whose legs and arms are so thin that it is impossible to suppose they ever removed their clothes. Do they not strut and leer and ogle and grin and stagger and weep in the very style of their author? Remembering my brief and the sort of jury among my friends I have to persuade, I am not inclined in this sketch to launch out into panegyrics upon Mr. Micawber and Mrs. Gamp and Mr. Pixniff and Betsy Trotwood and Bill Sykes, and Dick Swiveller, and Bob Sawyer, and Sam Weller, and Mark Tapley, and Old Scrooge. The mere mention of these names, which to some would suggest the music of the spheres, to others would suggest forced merriment, horrible early Victorian sentiment, and that sort of hackneyed unction of sly moral elders, which is youth's especial hell. Much wiser were it, as it seems to me, to indicate what in Dickens, in his style, his method, his vision, his act, actually appeals to one particular mind. I think it is to be found in his childlike imagination. Now, the modern cult for children has reached such fantastic limits that one has to be very careful when one uses that word. But Dickens is childlike, not as Oscar Wilde, that Uranian baby, or as Paul Verlaine, that little pet lamb of God, felt themselves to be childlike, or as the artificial-minded Robert Louis Stevenson fooled his followers into thinking him. He is really and truly childlike. His imagination and vision are literally the imagination and vision of children. We have not all played at pirates and buccaneers. 
We have not all dreamed of treasure islands and maroon sailors. We have not all believed in fairies. These rather tiresome and overrung upon aspects of children's fancies are, after all, very often nothing more than middle-aged people's damned affectations. The children's cult at the present day plays strange tricks. But Dickens, from beginning to end, has the real touch, the authentic creation. How should actual and living children, presented by new educational methods, glutted with toys, depraved by understanding sympathy, and worn out by performances of Peter Pan, believe, really and truly, in fairies any more? But in spite of sentimental child-worshippers, let us not hesitate to whisper, it doesn't matter in the least if they don't. The enlightened and cultivated mothers, who grow unhappy when they find their darlings cold to Titania and Oberon, and to the more poetic modern fairies, with the funny names, may not rest in peace. If the house they inhabit and the street they inhabit be not sanitized and art-decorated beyond all human interest, they may let their little ones alone. They will dream their dreams. They will invent their games. They will talk to their shadows. They will blow kisses to the moon. And all will go well with the child in the house, even if he has not so much as heard of the blue bird. If these uncomfortable childlike people read Dickens, they would know how a child really does regard life, and perhaps they would be a little shocked, for it is by no means only the romantic and aesthetic side of things that appeals to children. They have their nightmares, poor imps, and such devils follow them as older people never dream of. Dickens knew all that, and in his books, the thrill of the supernatural, as it hovers over chairs and tables and pots and pans, is never far away. It lurks that repelling, alluring terror in a thousand simple places. It moves in the darkness of very modern cupboards. It hides in the recesses of very modern cellars. It pounces out from the eaves of quite modern attics. It is there, halfway up the staircase. It is there, halfway down the passage, and God knows whether it comes or where it goes. To endow the little everyday objects that surround us, a certain picture in a certain light, a certain clock or stove in a certain shadow, a certain corner of the curtain when the wind moves it, with the fresh magic of natural animism, that is the real childlike trick, and that is what Dickens does. It is, of course, something not confined to people who are children in years. It is the old sweet witch-hag mystery that sooner or later has us all by the throat. And that is why, to me, Dickens is so great a writer. Since men have come to live so much in cities, since houses and streets and rooms and passages and windows and basements have come to mean more to them than fields and woods. It is essential that the old man covered with a mantle, the ancient of ancients, the disturber of rational dreams, should move into the town too, and mutter and murmur in its shadows. 
How hard a thing is it to put into words the strange attraction and the strange terror which the dwelling of mortal men have the power of exciting. To drift at nightfall into an unknown town and wander through its less frequented ways and peep into its dark empty churches and listen to the wind and the stunted trees that grow by its prison and watch some flickering particular light high up in some tall house the light of a harlot a priest an artist a murderer surely there is no imaginative experience equal to this then the thing one sees by chance by accident through half-open doors and shutter chinks and behind lifted curtains verily the ways of men upon earth are past finding out and their madness beyond interpretation it is not only children and yet it is children most of all who get the sense in a weird sudden flash of the demonic life of inanimate things why are our houses so full of things that one had better not look at things that like the faces of salome had better be seen in mirrors and things that must be forbidden to look at us the houses of mortal men are strange places they are sepulchres and cemeteries dungeons are they and prison cells not one of them but have murderous feet going up and down not one of them but have ravishes hands fumbling back and forth along the walls for the secret wishes and starved desires and mad cravings and furious revolts of the hearts of men and women living together decently in their homes grow by degrees palpable and real and gather to themselves strange shapes no writer who has ever lived can touch dickens in indicating this sort of familiar sorcery and the secret of its terror for it is children more than any who are conscious how haunted all manner of places and things are and we ourselves the searching psychologists are led singularly astray they peer and pry and repine and all the while the real essence of the figure that is you and that is i lies in its momentary expression in its most superficial gesture dickens world is a world of gnomes and hobgoblins of ghouls and laughing angels the realist of the thackeray school finds nothing but monstrous exaggeration here and fanatical mummery if he were right pardieu if his sleek reality were all that there was alarum we were indeed betrayed but no the children are right dickens is right neither realist or psychologist hit the mark when it comes to the true diablerie of living people there is something more whimsical more capricious more unreal than philosophers suppose about this human pantomime people are actually as every child knows much worse and much better than they ought to be and as every child knows too they tune their souls up to the pitch of their masks the surface of things is the heart of things and the protruding goblin tongue the wagging head the groping fingers the shuffling step are just as significant of the mad play motif as any hidden thoughts people think with their bodies and their looks and gestures nay their very garments are words tones whispers in their general confession 
The world of Dickens's fantastic creatures is all the nearer to the truth of our life because it is so arbitrary and impossible. He seems to go backwards and forwards with a torch, throwing knobs, jags, wrinkles, corrugations, protuberances, cavities, horns and snouts into terrifying illumination. But we are like that. That is what we actually are. That is how the pillar of fire sees us. Then again, are we to limit our interest, as the modern writers do, to the beautiful people, or the interesting people, or the gross, emphatic people? Dickens is never more childlike than when he draws us wonderingly and confidingly to the stark knees of Mrs. Pipchin, or when he drives us away in unaccountable panic terror from the rattling jet beads of Miss Murdstone. Think of the vast, queer, dim-lighted world wherein live and move all those funny, dusty, attenuated, heart-breaking figures of such as wear the form of woman, and yet may never know love. It is wonderful when you think of it, how much of absorbing interest is left in life when you have eliminated sex, suppressed psychology, and left philosophy out. Then appear all those queer attractions and repulsions, which are purely superficial and even material, and yet which are so dominant. Mother of God! How unnecessary to bring in fairies and bluebirds, when the solemnity of some little seamstress and her sorceress hands, and the quaint knotting of her poor wisp of hair, would be enough to keep a child staring and dreaming for hours upon hours. Life in a great city is like life in an enchanted forest. One never knows what hideous ogre or what exquisite hammer-dryad one may encounter. And the little ways of all one scrabbling and burrowing and chuckling and nodding and winking housemates, to go through the world expecting adventures is to find them sooner or later. But one need only cross one's threshold to find one adventure, the adventure of a new unknown fellow-creature, full of suspicion, full of cloudy malice, full of secretive dreams, and yet ready to respond, poor devil, to a certain kind of signal. Long reading of Dickens's books, like long living with children, gives one a wholesome dread of cynicism and flippancy. Children's games are more serious than young men's love affairs, and they must be treated so. It is not exactly that life is to be taken seriously. It is to be taken for what it is, an extraordinary pantomime. The people who will not laugh with Perrault because his jokes are so silly, and the people who will not cry with Columbine because her legs are so thin, may be shrewd psychologists and fashionable artists, but God help them, they are not in the game. The romance of city life is one thing, the romance of a particular city leads us further. Dickens has managed to get the inner identity of London, what is permanent in it, what can be found nowhere else, as not even Balzac got hold of Paris. London is terrible and ghastly, one knows that, but the wretchedest of its gammons knows that it is something else also. More than any place on earth, it seems to have that weight, that mass, that depth, that four-square solidity, which reassures and comforts in the midst of the illusions of life. 
it descends so far with its huge human foundations that it gives one the impression of a monstrous concrete base sunk into eternity upon which for all its accumulated litter and debris man will be able to build perhaps has begun already to build his herbs beata and dickens entered with dramatic clairvoyance into every secret of this titanic mystery he knew its wharfs its bridges its viaducts its alleys its dens its parks its squares its churches its morgues its circuses its prisons its hospitals and its madhouses and as the human atoms of that fantastic gesticulating weeping grinning crowd of his dance the crazy carmagnol we cannot but feel that somehow we must gather strength and friendliness enough to applaud such a tremendous performance dickens was too great a genius to confine his demonic touch to the town alone there are suggestions of his relating to country roads and country inns and country solitudes like nothing else except perhaps the vignettes of buick he carries the same animism into this also and he notes and records sensations of the most evasive kind the peculiar terror we feel for instance mixed with a sort of mad pity when by chance we light upon some twisted root trunk to which the shadows have given outstretched arms the vague feeling too so absolutely unaccountable that the sight of a lonely gate or weir or park railing or signpost or ruined shed or tumble-down sheepfold may suddenly arouse when we feel that in some weird manner we are the accomplices of the thing's tragedy a feeling that dickens alone among writers seems to understand a road with no people upon it and the wind alone sobbing there with blind eyes and wrinkled forehead a pool by the edge of a wide marshland like the marshland in great expectations with i know not what reflected in it and waiting always waiting for something that does not come a low bent knotted pine tree over which the ravens fly one by one shrieking these are the things that to some people to children for instance remain in the mind when all else of the country journey is forgotten there is no one but dickens who has a style that can drag these into light his style shrieks sometimes like a ghoul tugging at the roots of a mandrake at other times it wails like a lost soul at other times it mutters and whimpers and pipes in its throat like an old man blinking at the moon at other times it roars and thunders like ten thousand drunken devils at other times it breaks into wistful tender little girl sobs and catches the rhythm of poetry as in the death of nell sometimes a character in dickens will say something so humorously pregnant so direct from what we hear in the street and tavern that art itself gives up and applauds speechless after all it is meet and right that there should be one great author undistracted by psychology unseduced by eroticism there remain a few quite important things to deal with when these are removed birth for instance the mystery of birth and the mystery of death one never forgets death in reading dickens 
he has a thought of pity for those things that once were men and women lying with their six feet of earth upon them in our english churchyards so horribly still while the mask of their sorrow yields to the yet more terrible grin of our mortality's last jest and to the last he is like all children the lover of players every poor dog of public entertainer from the barrel-organ man to him who pulls the ropes for punch and judy has his unqualified devotion the modern stage may see strange revolutions some of them by no means suitable for children but we need not be alarmed there will always remain the larger stage the stage of man's own exits and entrances and there at any rate while dickens is their manager perrault may weep and dance and perrette dance and weep knowing that they will not be long without their audience or long without their applause he was a vulgar writer why not england would not be england and what would london be if we didn't have a touch a smack a sprinkling of that ingredient he was a shameless sentimentalist why not it is better to cry than to comb one's hair all day with an ivory comb he was a monstrous melodramatist why not to be born is a melodrama to play hide-and-seek with death is a melodrama and some have found melodramatic satisfaction in letting themselves be caught all the world's a puppet show and if the big showman jerks his wires so extravagantly why should not the little showman do the same end of chapter seven